going on, everybody? And thanks for coming back to another Book 2 episode. Today, I am joined by Jeremy Robert Johnson. How are we doing today? Doing awesome. Fantastic. Uh, I know uh, we're kind of uh, on the, I guess, would you say riding the curtails of your of your latest release, The Loop? Uh, or would you say, you know, it's it's been out for a little bit, so everybody should already know about it? <laughs> yeah, no, um, I, I'm surprised people are still finding out about it. The initial, uh, initial release was so over the top uh, and was such like a big surge. Uh, but now it's like, there's a lot of kind of horror and weird readers who are just finding out about it for the first time. So um, yeah, it feels like, it feels kind of like I'm in the trail of the comet now. Like the big surge went, went past and now it's just like making sure the right weirdos find this book, you know? <laughs> I guess I was one of the right weirdos. I found it really- <laughs> You're ahead of the curve. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, well, I want to I want to know, I kind of want to start at the beginning. So I want to know, uh, who is Jeremy Robert Johnson? Uh, you know, who were you growing up? What did you actually want to be growing up? Did you want to be an author or is it just something that kind of happened? Uh, and then I want to talk a little bit about your writing process a little later in the, in the chat. Yeah, it sounds great. Um, so I was a, a writer from about five. You know, that's when I started trying to trying to make stories. None of them were ever longer than a page, and almost all of them were about uh, sharks or werewolves. But that's when I started trying to get things down on paper and illustrating them and all that. Um, and a lot of that stemmed from just like and my initial fascination with Jaws. Like that's the my birthday present when I turned five was my parents let me watch the movie Jaws for the first time because I'd been obsessed with my dad's paperback of it. You know, for for a couple years. You know, the first time I flipped it over. Uh, it was sitting on his bedstand. I flipped it over and I saw the cover and I ran out of the room. I was so terrified by the cover of Jaws. It was, you know, the film adaptation cover. Um, yeah. And then, so that kind of, that fascination just extended into a fascination with horror films and horror literature. And, you know, and I talked to my mom into buying me Cycle of the Werewolf when I was either six or seven and then Salem's Lot after that. And then I became a, a king constant reader uh, throughout my youth. Um, you know, and then all of a sudden you get to the end of King and you're like, what do I do now? Well, in the eighties, you just hit the paperback racks and you were like, who was sitting next to King? And it was Barker and McCammon and Lansdale and Skip Inspector. I mean, it was during that boom. So, um, that's, that's the really like central influence on, um, how I became a writer and, and what art influenced me. Um, and so, yeah, I guess I kind of was that from from the start. Although as a career, originally I wanted to be a um, like a marine biologist. I thought I was going to be like like Ron and Valerie and work with great white sharks and and uh, you know try to try to work on shark conservation because I saw a Peter Benchley documentary where it was like, oops, I shouldn't have made you guys go out and kill all the sharks. We should probably protect them. <laughs> They're an integral part of our ecological system um and so that was my goal and my my big idea i had in the fourth grade was to create an electrified um shark cage not thinking about you know electricity conducting in salt water or anything like that i was like oh sharks they got they got the ampullae of lorenzi in their nose like the electricity will keep them far back we can really study them you know for long periods of time and stuff uh, and then somebody pointed out like you, you can't run an electric current into the ocean <laughs> by your body and then and then uh later i got it i got an ear infection and uh my eardrum basically exploded and never healed right. So there's still a, there's a hole in this side, uh, in the eardrum and it makes it so I can't really go deeper than 12 feet underwater or it, or it kind of collapses the eardrum. And that, that's when I officially was like, well, marine biology may be out, but I can still write. By then teachers had encouraged me to write and, and uh, you know, I've always figured that was the path after that. So it's kind of okay. the, how it started. 
Yeah, yeah, you're like, uh, well, that dream's dead. Uh, what's yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I, you know, I'm interested. Is it is it like every young boy's dream to work with sharks or some of that? Because you know, I I was uh, when I grew up, you know, first it was dinosaurs, and then yep. you know, of course that that was out the window when I realized, oh yeah, they, they don't exist. Uh, <laughs> and then uh, and then it was sharks, and I was just fascinated with sharks for years. Uh, and I guess you know maybe Discovery Channel was like Shark Week. You know, it was always it was always hyped up, and now it's I feel like it's just gotten like cartoonish now. But you know, you yeah. Really, really cool because and, and now it's just like we're gonna follow the same shark for two decades and see what it's up to uh but yeah, i that, like i was the same way i made i was like thing. you can't you can't get access to these dinosaurs man i was like <laughs> these things are as old as the dinosaurs you know and and they you can still go see one and you know get, get close to it and and be terrified and fascinated at the same time which is kind of my my favorite vibe so <laughs> Yeah, I, I think it is a natural, it's the closest thing you can get as a kid to hanging out with a dinosaur, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and when you're little, yeah. the thing can actually like, it can eat you almost whole. And so that that sensation of like, wow, that is the biggest, scariest thing. <laughs> I need to get really close to it and see one and read about it all day long. And, and you know, um, yeah, pre-Shark Week, it was the rare documentary, like every once in a while, or they'd be like towards the end of a National Geographic special, there'd be some shark footage and you'd just freak out and uh, you know, but it was more like you had to buy all the shark books and then and then you'd flip right to the shark attack section first because that was the scariest. <laughs> of <one>. course. <laughs> right. And then and then you'd be like, oh, okay, at the end you get to the biology stuff and learn about the denticles and, and all their sensory stuff. But it was always a shark attacks from the from the get-go, you know. Yeah, I guess it's that fascination with like being able to be killed by something like lightning quick, you know, and, and yeah. It's funny because, you know, whenever you see documentaries about, you know, like lions in Africa or you know, any other like beast that that is very dangerous, like sharks always become like a number one because everybody assumes that as soon as you hit the water, they're after you, you know, whereas right, right. if you're in like the plains or something, you're like, oh, we, we've got a ways before we see one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, it's that, that whole thing about like taking taking a shower in the morning. Is, is a million times more likely to kill you. That drive on the interstate's like two million times more likely to kill you. But get wet, like I, I hop in a public pool and I close my eyes for a second, I get freaked out because I'm like probably gonna get eaten by a shark. I'm in water, so it's a gimme that that's gonna happen. Um, it's, a, it's like a deeply irrational fear just because of the thing's just a mobile mouth. Yeah, <laughs> Just the exactly. fastest, meanest, sharpest mouth you can find in the world. Uh, so yeah, it's... Uh, I think it started a lot of, I think um, uh, Paul Tremblay, I think uh, Andy Davidson, there's a lot of other horror authors that maybe wouldn't exist in the way they do without Jaws as that as that central focus, you know, in your youth. Yeah. Start, that and King launched a lot of ships is, is <laughs> what I think, yeah. Right. So I, I have to ask, so, uh, you know, you, you, you sound like a pretty big King fan. You, you've read his entire catalog. Uh, so I just, uh, I finally watched the the remake of Pet Cemetery, and I want to know your thoughts. I, I I thought it was okay. Right. Um. I so okay. So I'm a heretic <laughs> when it comes. To, I'm a heretic when it comes to adaptations. So for me, it's like I read that book, and and that book's never going to change, right? So so I don't care what you do to the property. I always go in with the hope that something interesting will be done with it. Um. And so to me, I don't care about like, you know, the, how they kind of flip the script on which kid, you know, spoilers, but they, they changed some stuff up from the original. Um, and I, I felt 
they captured some of the mean spiritedness of the novel that wasn't necessarily in Lambert's adaptation. Um, but also Lambert's adaptation was the one I watched as a child and you know, like Zelda in particular and, and all of that imprinted so deeply, you know, um, that it's tough for me to, you know, have too much appreciation for, for anything else just because of that youthful attachment, you know, it's like yeah. they, they could have even done a version better than that. And I still would have been attached to, to, you know, the old, the old version. Um, so I, I think it was an admirable take. I mean, I, I get why some people are, are fussy about it, but I don't know. And I, I, I uh, Widmer's uh, starry eyes, I thought was fantastic. Um, so I'm still excited to see whatever, whatever those guys do next. Um, but yeah, it wasn't wasn't my favorite King adaptation. I think I think the first half of uh, it was the stronger one of the of the recent goes. I'd agree. Um, <laughs> even though I'm not like wild about Machete either. Um, but <laughs> man, he's awesome at shorts. That guy, that Mama short is crazy good. The Mama movie is not the same thing, you know. So yeah, I don't know. He's he's good at some setups and scares. Yeah. You know? Right. Yeah. Yeah. I kind of feel, you know, like, uh, maybe, maybe not so much so, but I feel like, you know, King fans are kind of like star Wars fans. You know, they're gonna, they're gonna kind of crap on just about anything. Yeah. Yeah. You can't, you can't please anybody and you especially can't please diehard decades long fans of anything. There's just no way. So if you can, if you can get a pretty good batting average with a King adaptation, you know, you're stoked. Yeah. There you go. Um, so I want to know a little bit about your earlier, uh, you know, writing. So you said, you know, you're writing since you're about five, you're writing like one page stories. Uh, so, you know, you started writing then, you know, what were some of your stories like, uh, you know, when you were younger versus now, and, you know, when did you actually start writing seriously versus just writing to write? Um, I was, let's see. So, uh, because I'm, because I'm a genius, I dropped out of college to be a writer, which is, uh, that's a funny. Well, anyway, I was on I was on like a pretty solid <laughs> path towards. I was going to be an educator and uh, and teach and all that, and then hopefully just write on the side. And then um, I don't know. I got I got really passionate about it, and I was like, I'm gonna I'm gonna go. I'm gonna do you know. I'm gonna travel the world, and I'm gonna in college. I got access to you know literary fiction for the first time. So so growing up in a small town, the range of fiction in general that I was exposed to was just you know high school curriculum, and then the spinning book rack at the drugstore. So for me, it was all pulp all the time. You know, it was, it was purely about entertaining paperbacks. Um, and then every once in a while, you know, some more literary stuff from the high school teachers. But when I got to my first ever college bookstore and saw the range of what they had and started um, getting into, you know, all these, all these other authors and types of fiction I hadn't been exposed to, it, uh, really expanded what I wanted to try and create. And all of a sudden I wanted to merge those influences with the pulp stuff that I'd grown up with. And I thought I could do so successfully. And so, yeah, I, uh, I, I set off to travel the world and I ended up uh, working at a video store and living in my parents' garage, <laughs> which was, which was a bummer. Um, but then, yeah, across, across a couple of apartments and uh, living with different roommates and different girlfriends, I gradually wrote my first fiction collection um, every single Sunday. I would sit down at 7 p.m. and I would write. And then at 8, uh, Simpsons would come on. And then at 9, X-Files would come on. So it was this Sunday ritual for me. You know, I worked my video store job, fucked off for the weekend. And then on Sundays, <laughs> I would get disciplined and write for that little tiny stretch. And um, yeah, I gradually built up enough of a portfolio to create this collection. 
of just awful stuff called Old Fat Dog the Book. And everything in it was just, I can clearly look at it as me learning to use certain tools. You know, everything was, okay, here's where I'm trying to replicate Bradbury. Here's where I'm trying to do a King story. Here's where I'm trying to to do like an Elroy thing or a David Foster Wallace thing. Or a, a, I was super into David Sedaris. So I did a lot of like comical halfway true essays about my life. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it was rough. It was, it was super rough. None of that stuff is, it, there's, there's copies of it out there that I, I like hand bound 30 copies and they exist, but, but none of it's in print um, beyond that. And then fine. And then after that, I was like, okay, uh, maybe I'll take some classes. And then I took some fiction classes with actual like published authors. Um, and by that time I had moved to Eugene just for no reason, no good reason. <laughs> and, uh, they had great teachers there. They had a huge writing community there. And, and I took lessons from, from Elizabeth Engstrom, who's experiencing this Renaissance with like the paperbacks from hell series right now. And from Nina Creaky Hoffman, who had won a Stoker and Bruce Holland Rogers, who'd won like everything. Um, I just had this fantastic batch of teachers who really helped ground me in actual skills and story structure and teach me the nuts and bolts that I hadn't got from just reading. Um, and all of a sudden I was selling stories like left and right. It, it's like the, the dam broke, uh, 200, literally 200 rejections later. Like I had all these little tiny rejection notes I could have wallpapered the house with. And, um, yeah. And then once I got those first couple sales, people really took to it. And, and, uh, I don't know, it, it, it took off weirdly fast after that. 2001 to 2005 was just kind of nonstop, like getting, getting stuff published and was super exciting. So you, you still have all those rejection notices? Oh yeah, actually I, I do. I have a, I have a folder and then I have a separate folder that's helpful rejection notices, you know, where <laughs> well, at the time, at the time it was like, uh, I was trying to keep certain editors on the hook. Like, okay, they were kind of interested in this. I'm going to say, you may remember me from the short story, da da da. Here's another one. I hope you like it. You know, cause sometimes you really had to get through the slush readers and the editorial assistants. And then you finally got to like, you know, the, the editor in chief. Um, so yeah, I have that tiny stash of like almost getting fantasy and science fiction, almost getting into Esquire. Like there are these little ones where I, you know, zoetrope and stuff that were like big, big ticket ones for me. And then, uh, but then I kind of got out of the short story game after that. Um, I, I wanted to try my hand at novels finally, which turned out awesome. I, I love novel writing. So yeah. Do, so do you like it more than the short, short, uh, shorthand? I, I think I do. I mean, I, I think it's just because I spent the first seven or eight years only doing short stories. I felt like I'd, I'd developed more range and skill there. And so the challenge of trying to structure a novel was more interesting to me intellectually, like sitting down and saying, how, how does this thing tick? How the hell do you make this thing work and still keep people engaged and keep them moving through the story and, and have that rise and fall uh, of emotions? So yeah, um, so far for, for the moment, I'm having more fun writing novels still. And novellas, man, I love doing a novella because you kind of get the best of both worlds. Um, I know I just saw something with Brian Evanson recently where he was saying the same thing. Like he just feels like it's this kind of, even though he works primarily in short stories, his favorite thing to do is the novella because you have, you kind of get to do everything. You can tell the scope of a novel and you can do it with the economy of language and the efficiency of a short story almost. So it's, I, I really love novellas too. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, I feel like that's, uh, you know, that's one of the, uh, the forms that's really hit the ground running over the past couple of years. Um, I know, you know, tour.com that's yep. really what they do. Uh, and they're a majority of them that, you know, that have read, I mean, I, you know, I've, I've read several uh, are fantastic. And yeah, it's, it's one of those things where you can just draw, you know, draw a reader into this big world, maybe tell the story of one character, but it be sufficient enough to where it's like, 
you know, that was a great read for my lunch hour or something. It, you yeah. Can, yeah. You, you can, and you can tell yourself you've read a book. Well, you know, I know King and Hill, they'll be like, they're so prolific. They're like, here's, here's five novellas in one book. It's like, what? Those could have all been books. <laughs> yeah, but, exactly. You know, they've got their own model. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And and that's the thing about it. I mean, they you know, they they write great short stories. Um, but yeah, they they just combine them into a into a novel sized you know collection or anthology. So yeah, I mean, I think uh, full full dark no stars is is my favorite recent king. My my favorite like maybe no yeah post two thousands king. I think full dark no stars, which is like for you know almost like literary crime novellas with slight supernatural elements. You know. Um, that was my favorite thing in a long time from him. So it's, it's just a great form, period. You know, and it's cinematic too, right? Because it's like you're having that experience into a three to six hour range. Um, yeah. And and if you can if you can rope a reader in for a single sitting, the odds of everything landing emotionally of, of people staying within that tone are stronger too. I think so. So it's a it's a great delivery system. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, it doesn't. It's it's a it's a form that doesn't require a lot of buildup. I mean, you can kind of immerse this, you know, in the first yep. 15 pages and you kind of have to hook, you know, you have to hook somebody in rather quickly in a novella versus a novel because, you know, novels take build up and they take world building if you're doing fantasy or science fiction uh, or, you know, you've got to lay that groundwork for eeriness, whether, you know, if you're doing horror or something, which I know um, I don't read a ton of uh, collections or anthologies, but uh, Growing Things by Paul Tremblay is probably one of my favorite collections over the past yep. few years. And I feel like just everyone hit. And there was one that uh, I can't remember the name of it, uh, but it was talking. It was basically uh, him writing about himself from uh, the notes from a dog walker. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That one. That one killed me. And, and <laughs> I had to message him after I read it. And I go, did you seriously like seriously? Like, I don't even have any words for him. And he goes, yeah, that, that's exactly what I was looking for. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, so. I want to know what is uh what is a typical writing day for you now? You know, obviously yeah. you, your su your Sunday evening, you know, seven to eight p.m. writing session. But do you have a typical day, or do you just write when you can, um, or do you have like a a morning ritual that you write to, or do you only write at night? <laughs> um, right right now it's it's a hundred percent at random. Um, uh, the primary difference being uh, my son used to ship off two blocks to the elementary street down the, the hill. And now that's not there. Uh, so I'm, I've become, you know, back to, back to my roots, my original college path, I've kind of become a fourth grade teacher. Um, we've got him in an online system, but I'm still the primary person that's getting him through the curriculum. And, and especially fourth grade is, it turns out is when math kind of heats up, you know? Uh, so working through math and social studies with him and, and uh, I've become so much, Kind of a, a teacher and like a pandemic balance person like <laughs> trying to make things things stay, stay halfway normal around here um that it's it's more oh can i sneak something in can i get can i get a binge writing session in on a sunday afternoon um you know if i owe somebody a short story uh can i get that done in the next couple of days and it, it truly now is just where does it fit in the chaos where, where can i make it happen that's to the least uh, detriment to my family and their sense of what's going on in the world right now um on top of that right now with the loop uh you know trying to run all the book promotion from home uh has been has been an adventure you know i'm out here in my office um just trying to to make sure to get the book in front of people but i can't physically go put the book in front of people like i plan to you know not, not being out at bookstores 
and uh, actually signing stuff and getting to know people and meeting booksellers and meeting librarians and stuff like that. Uh, this has been a very different beast. So trying to figure out how to make that work and trying to be a fourth grade teacher. And I'm also, oh, I'm back in college. <laughs> so I'm also taking online college courses. Uh, it, it, that means that writing has become like, get in where you fit in, you know? It's yeah. like, like when can I do it? And then go, 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 you know, uh, make, it, make it happen. Um, I gotcha. But I'm excited. I'm, I'm revving up. Uh, you know, the moment we can get some vaccines in us and like resocialize, uh, the idea for the next novel has finally got ramped up in my head. So I'm getting pretty excited. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, so yeah. how's, uh, how's I mean, I guess it's not new math anymore. But how's uh, how, I guess how's the new way of, of teaching or and or learning math going? I, I I've seen videos <laughs> of it because you know you know used to you just added and subtracted. You didn't have to like explain how you got there, but yeah. I, I've seen the techniques used now, and and I'm I'm not for it. <laughs> no, it's uh so so initially I felt the same way because I was like okay, they they literally like Common Core takes 15 steps to build up the pyramid to like a trick they would have taught me in day one. Like they right. there's stuff that I realize now in in like multiplication or long division where they just be like oh just put an X there and then move to the next row and they never explained what the X was and I didn't know like the X represented the the hundred space or the thousand space I had no mathematical concept I just knew oh the trick is you put an X and to me it was like okay good enough trick they said good job I got I got the answers um, but with Common Core they're like no you have to deeply conceptually understand every single principle in mathematics before you learn the trick. Um, and so, yeah, it feels it feels really laborious and repetitious. But I almost feel like my son's going to have a better, like, deeper understanding of mathematics and that language and how it works. Uh, but to me, it kind of feels like learning Latin so you can learn English. Like, oh, you need to know Latin before you can learn any Latin languages because these are the building blocks. And it's like, no, you could just learn Spanish. Like, right. Um, <laughs> so yeah, it's uh, we're we're getting through it. I'm learning how they're learning now. So. Um, yeah, and then I have I have my own college statistics course next quarter, so it's gonna be all math all the time up in here. <laughs> yeah, goodness. But I say yeah, it, you know, it's like you know, a, a plus b equals c. Well, how'd you get that? It, it just is. Yeah, you, it is. You need to explain <laughs> to me. And I'm like, I don't want to. It hurts my head. <laughs> yeah, that's where we're at. <laughs> yeah, good grief. Um, so. Tell me, you know, you, you told me some authors that you read uh, growing up, and I'm, I'm sure that you still read now. Who, you know, would you say those those are still your same influences? Do you have newer influences, maybe newer voices in the past, say, decade uh, that have kind of influenced your writing? Oh, yeah. I, I mean, um, I'm definitely like, you know, one of the, one of those <laughs> mollusks or whatever that builds its shell out of all the different tiny pieces of, of the other mollusks that died, you know. Um, <laughs> I, I'm I'm fascinated by other people's techniques. Like I, I do go through, um, you know, I have I have Stephen Graham Jones books that have a lot of highlighted passages and arrows and question marks and and uh, I've done the same thing with, um, you know, Evanson or Cody Goodfellow or the last the last one I really was like studious about was uh, Kelly Link trying to figure out her kind of anomalous uh, little things she does that enrich the voice and and kind of feed up into the mystery behind her stories and and make it feel really rich even when she's keeping things ambiguous. Um, so no, I mean, every, everybody I read along the way, um, I read first, I try to read first as a reader, as a person who's just there to enjoy it and experience it. But then when I find myself having a particularly resonant experience and I'm like, oh man, why did that hit me so hard? Or why did that work? That's when I go back as a writer and try to look at the craft of it. Um, and, and, you know, 
kind of form my own poor man's MFA just by studying and uh, the technique of, of people I really admire. And then, and then I go back around and I try to use those tools. Like uh, I've got a novella called The Sleep of Judges that very much was me saying, okay, here's how Paul Tremblay does the uh, family man story. Um, you know, here's, here's the family in danger at the core of all of his stuff. And here's what makes that work. And here's what makes that feel real. And then I also looked at like Brian Evanson's uncertainty and the way he works with uncertainty. I was like, if I could merge those two things, I might be able to make something really compelling uh, and then merge that with my own experience of our family's house being burglarized. Um, and so that was a really fun one to put. It came together across, you know, two weekends, like the core of it, um, just because I knew I had not templates, but I had tools I wanted to try out. And in trying them, I learned about them and experimented with them and then created my own amalgam, like this new weird thing. So um, it's perpetual, you know, it's it's everything you read. And then, um, you know, especially with long form television now, trying to figure out uh, how those arcs work and are interwoven. And when's the point when long form entertainment turns into soap versus maintaining an overall feeling of really telling a full story. Um, so no, I'm always, I'm always studying, you know, um, but I try to enjoy it first because I don't want to be robbed of that experience, you know? <laughs> Like I, I told my wife one time we were watching a show and I was like, oh, it's just going to be, this is going to be a, a bunch of try fail sequences. And she's like, what? And I was like, yeah, they're going to try and fail twice. And then they're going to be successful on the third attempt. And it's going to feel good to us emotionally. And she, and she, and then it happened. Right. And then she was like, so disappointed. She was like, why did you teach me about that? Cause now once it's like one of those techniques, once you see it, you can't unsee it in storytelling. Yeah. And so, um, and that's what make like, makes like Coen brothers great is a Coen brothers they'll do a try fail, fail sequence. And on the third one, the, the utter unexpected thing will happen that it doesn't even have to do with the sequence and they'll have you off your pivot. You know, they, they're so good about subverting uh, those kind of techniques and playing with them in a way that the first time you watch one of their movies, you're like, what? And then you come back around and you're like, oh, it's because they're <laughs> awesome, you know? And on the commercial <laughs> side, I think, I think Pixar does a good job of kind of uh, playing with expectation a little bit, like their role is whatever the first three ideas are that comes to somebody's mind, you can't use those ones, you know, as a as a solution or as a next twist. It has to be, you have to really get further out from what anyone would expect. And I, th I think that's a big part of why people really love their storytelling. I gotcha. Yeah, it was funny when you said that, because uh, my, my wife, you know, currently is watching some, some of the Hallmark Christmas movies. Mm. And uh, we're, we're, yeah. uh, we're I, I say we, she was watching one last night that just happened to be in the room. I was, I was trying present. To, you know, it was, you know, it was kind of impossible. Um, yeah. but, but I, I, I noticed, and I don't know if it was, if it was bad storytelling, bad acting, a mix of both or what, but everything just seems to come so easy to everybody. And you, there's like, there's like a minuscule bit of drama that's thrown in that I guess keeps you kind of in it. But we watched last night and my wife actually goes, this is terrible. And I go, yeah. why do you watch it? And she goes, well, it's just so easy just to have on. And I go, there are so many better things that we could watch <laughs> that are actually entertaining and, and not just, you know, nice to hear or, or whatever. Cause you know, you have the, the, the nice music and yep. it's all soft, you know, lighting and stuff. It's, it's no, we're, we're watching one a week. That's hilarious. So, so, <laughs> so anyway, my wife and I also, we, I, I have a shared, fascination and revulsion with the Hallmark movie series and the speed at which they crank those out and the, the story elements. Um, and so they'll have the twinkling white lights in the background of almost every shot for a good one. And then they'll have the hardworking businesswoman who either doesn't have time for love or doesn't have time for family and needs to learn a Christmas lesson so she can reconnect. 
Um, and then there'll be the unexpected love interest, and then there'll be the traditional love interest, and there'll be that slight kind of a triangle there. And then eventually she learns that the one who wants real human connection and is kind of unorthodox is the one she should have been with all along because of some kind of Christmas lesson. And then there's like the the chimes and all that. Cause we were trying to figure out like, it, could we like create a day in our actual family life where we like play Hallmark music in the background, have white lights everywhere, like bake cookies. So the house just smells like cookies all day. Like, like a random Hallmark comfort day. Cause it is, we, my wife acknowledges this too. It's, it's formulaic garbage. But it's yeah. like this weird, like, okay, you know, pandemic stress levels are here. What's the one piece of art that demands less than nothing from us? And it's like, it's <laughs> it's a it's a Hallmark Christmas movie with Candace Cameron in it. It's yep. like she's in she's in forty and, and of this, them. And this is this yeah. is this, yeah, this is one of them. I think it was like the Christmas Town uh, or yes. whatever, where, she, where she's <laughs> like a teacher and she leaves the guy who doesn't want kids and she ends yep. up Grandin Falls and everything just happens to fall in the exact place it needs to. It's just, and the funny thing I found about it is that her original love interest at the beginning just is like okay with her, you know, going, I'm going to stay here. And he's like, okay, cool. And just like, leave. <laughs> he never cared all along. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's the good, the, the one where they go back home and rediscover their values too is always like, oh, I'm back from the city to my podunk hillbilly town. But man, the Christmas spirit's doing something to me. Like, <laughs> It can't be easy to make 30 of those a year. It cannot. I mean, you, you, have, you have to run into ideas at some point. Like, or what they're going to do. Is oh, they did. The same, the same <laughs> yeah. story, but instead of a librarian, it's going to be like, I don't know, a, a construction worker or something. It's They're going to make it like gritty. <laughs> they're, they're just spinning the wheel. They have, somebody told me about that at, um, oh, I forget which of that. Maybe it was Harlequin, like one of the romance labels. Um, they, they had basically like a pie chart or a, a wheel of romance. And they were like, here are the elements. Here's the wheel. Slap them together. Make it 80,000 words. You got yourself a novel. Like, you know, they literally had uh, these these formula templates and th that needed to be honored. Uh, whether whether the bad girl would have uh, dark hair or blonde hair, there were all these different like little p bits and pieces that were positioned for maximum product, right? Which, you know, I get, it's like it's oatmeal with cinnamon, right? It's like... Just okay. You don't even have to chew. Just yeah. It's kind of sweet. It's kind of warm. <laughs> I guess that's why there's so many romance novels out there because they they know the the formula and they know yeah. people just to eat it up. But and I'm gonna, I'm going to go crazy here. Horror is completely different. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um. And you know you you had mentioned uh you know a, a couple of authors earlier that I feel like they're the ones that kind of hit me emotionally the most, but which would be Stephen Graham Jones and Andy Davidson. Something yeah. about the way they write and the way they bring you into the story. I mean, if a, if a, a novel as horrific as, as their novels are, can bring you to almost tears or two tears, you're doing something right. Uh, yeah. The two novels that did that for me, uh, I mean, most recently would be the, the boatman's daughter by Davidson yep. and uh, the only good Indians uh, yep. by, by Jones. Which I mean, they're just, they're just absolutely phenomenal. Um, and I was wondering, have you had a chance to read those? And, and are those, you know, a couple that you've highlighted and pointed arrows to? And yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Only, only good Indians and Boatman's Daughter are actually kind of the two I've been, um, you know, because you always get that question towards the end of interviews and stuff. What have you been reading lately? What's your, what's your favorite and stuff? And though, honestly, I've I've been on like the uh, the Boatman's Daughter evangelical tour, like I just just preaching that thing up, you know, because it hit right in February. And then the pandemic hit and and i feel like it didn't necessarily get um 
as much attention as it deserved on launch. But man, have you seen in the last couple of days? It's on like N NPR's best books, uh, Booklist, ALA. Like they people get it. People get how amazing that book is. And honestly, to me, it's just like you know the uh, dark Southern Gothic fantasy merged with basically Winter's Bone. But then it also has those touches of like Lansdale's grit and humor, and then it also has those touches of like poetic darkness that you get out of Cormac McCarthy. Um, to me, it's just it was just a phenomenal experience, but also one of those where the line by line writing was, you know, I I, I think I threw the book down a couple times, and I was like, damn it, Davidson! Just, I was so jealous of some of the line by line writing and the way he made it land and the way it hit. Uh, I was I was wildly impressed by that, you know. And then it also has like you know, lizard boys and witches and demons and and you know that he made that all work and still feel. Like its own, like its own piece, and feel more on the side of realism than fantasy was fantastic to me. And then, and then, only good Indians. Yeah, I, I did a, a a Twitter thread about it that that turned into like a multi day celebration of only good Indians because I couldn't. It was like you know, I I didn't just have something to say. I had like fifteen somethings to say about that book uh, and the way it works and and how how well deserved its success has been. And I I can't believe we haven't seen a film option on that thing yet. Like to me, it should already be in post production. You right. know, from the get go, once they saw that it's just I don't know, it's it's a it's a nasty story. And, uh, you know, Elkhead Woman is kind of anomalous as a, it's not your traditional stalker slasher kind of thing. The way she manipulates situations mm -hmm. uh, has just enough ambiguity to uh, where I could see like people would be like, OK, we need to, I don't know, uh, take some of that away for a filmic version. But uh, no, those are those are my two favorites of the year so far. Honestly, yeah. Yeah, I mean, just, just picked it apart. <laughs> yeah, it, it's funny. I actually met Andy uh, last year at a Noir event. Um, he came over and and read a little bit from Boatman's, uh, Boatman's Daughter. So it, was, it would have been four months before its release. Um, but yeah, I, I've been seeing his wife, Crystal, post him like all the different things that he's like on the best stuff for the year. It's, it's amazing. I'm, and I'm like, man, I told you guys, you know, kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. Like in like January or February. And I'm like, you read this book. And, and now at the end of the year, it's starting to kind of come out and be like, you know, there it is. So why not? Yeah. Um, so uh, I want to talk a little bit about your, your books. Um, I know you've got a few out, you've got, um, what one collection, a novella, a couple of novels. Yep. Um, but I want to talk about, uh, first Skullcrack city. It was the first novel that I kind of, uh, saw your name attached to. Um, so I want to know, can, can you tell us a little bit about that story? Um, and, um, you know, kind of where are you at now with it? I know, I know, uh, it, you know, it's out of print currently, uh, it, it's almost impossible to get a decent price coffee anywhere. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so, uh, you know, will we be seeing that one again as well? Um, yeah, Skullcrack City was just my first go at um, working with a long-form novel, and it uh, also kind of came out of my experience of working in the banking industry for 13 years right up to the Great Recession, at which point uh, I had the opportunity to come home and, and be a stay-at-home dad and uh, not be in banking for a little bit, because that was a doozy of a 13-year stretch uh, to finish up in all that fraud. Uh, so it kind of came from like my disillusionment with that fraud and then my desire to tell a big story and a big a big conspiracy story and to try my hand at cosmic horror and also uh i had been really impressed by um this book foop by christian noah and then uh john dies at the end uh by david wong and in particular the wong one because it actually had legitimate scares and eerie moments mixed in with being laugh out loud funny uh and and he just kind of 
to me, it was it was that he had swung for the fences on on so many ideas and gone so big with the the kind of humor set pieces. They even like there's a section where they think they're in doom for a little bit and they're opening crates to get out. And I like I was like ah. Oh. But then two sections later, he'd have me going again. And then a chapter after that, I'd be scared. I'd be genuinely like scared by the book and by the concept. So I was like, however that magic worked, um, you know, I'd written comedic stuff when I was younger. And so I tried to uh, to merge kind of comedy and horror and sci-fi and cyberpunk and splatterpunk and bizarro. It was just my big mess of a first novel, uh, over ambitious, over weird. But it, um, David Wong, you know, Jason Pargan was actually nice enough to say something and it kind of hit after I'd had these other collections build up a nice audience and then Skullcrack City kind of exploded. Like we didn't expect it to. Uh, Cameron Pierce, who was the editor and I both thought it was gonna be just a mix of five stars and one stars on Amazon and, and uh, it was gonna be a total love it or hate it deal. And instead it was just kind of like universally acclaimed and commercially successful and, and totally crazy. And we moved like 10,000 copies of that thing uh, on a budget of zero dollars, you know, we um, it was done about as low key and, and gorilla as you can put a book out, aside from paying for professional cover art. Um, and after that took off, there was enough notice. That's kind of what let the loop happen. Um, and and got a I was I was hearing from executive editors at, at the Big Five based on Skullcrack. They were they were seeing what it was doing out in the marketplace, and uh, they were like, Hey, what do you have next? And let me preface that also by saying it cannot be as crazy as Skullcrack City. So they're like, don't give me a Skullcrack, but give me something that will perform like a Skullcrack City, uh, which is a weird thing to ask for. They're like, don't do what you do, but also do it precisely so we can tell the same amount. Um, uh, but also that's, you know, my agent got excited and, and uh, uh, that's kind of the genesis of Exit Human. Uh, was saying, all right, you know, now we have people's interest, time to do another weird thing and, and see what happens. And luckily we did end up selling that to a big five publisher and stuff. And, and in between there, I snuck in uh, a kind of best of collection with Nightshade called Entropy and Bloom. That's a brand new novella, uh, uh, Sleep of Judges. And then basically I had a bunch of readers vote. What are, what are my top 15 short stories of all time? And did a reader poll and analyzed the Goodreads and Amazon and crunched the numbers. So very like empirically built best of collection and then a new thing. Uh, in between that and then there was a little novella in between there that was like my my throwback to to do an indie stuff which was called in the river um which is just this wildly dark um you know kind of hyper literary story about um you know a, a father and son in the uh, south american jungle and and him having to deal with a, a tragic accident involving his son and sharks and <laughs> and uh, you know all kinds of it, it's just a really weird dark story and hopefully that's coming back out soon too. Hopefully everything's back out by June of 2021. Um, whether I release it myself or whether um, the loop or some of these film projects develop enough interest that, that somebody else uh, re-releases the work. But uh, I just want it back in front of people. Yeah, I, I gotcha. It all comes back to sharks, doesn't it? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I knew someday I was going to write something with sharks. So I had to find my way. Uh, Paul Tremblay actually wrote to me, and after he'd read it, and he was like, "Damn it, you found your shark book." I think he's got a shark book in him somewhere. Like we will get sharks out of Paul someday, but uh, it's just a matter of when. You can't do Jaws again. You can't do. You can't do the mayor won't shut no. down the beaches. Like eventually did that enough himself later. Like Beast, he was just like, "What if Jaws but a squid?" Like. <laughs> We've already had that, you know. Right, and then you, you know, you've already had the Meg, and then uh, yep. you know, already had Sharknado. So, like, what what else do you do? <laughs> no, not a lot. Not. I mean, they. I think 
Deep Blue Sea 2 tried to make them super smart sharks, which nobody needs that. And I don't know. Super yeah. smart bull sharks. That's how they changed it up. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I guess I guess the only thing you could do would be like in an aquarium. Like somebody gets dropped in a shark tank or something. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll and has to now. survive the night. <laughs> yeah. I'll, 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 I'll <laughs> yeah, I, no, that could be great though. If if only they actually held great whites in captivity, you know? They could. Like, yeah. It's 2020. You can do anything. Three. Yeah. They, <laughs> they can't just swim in little tiny circles. They have to go all the way up and down the ocean, you know? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Um, so, okay. So, speaking of the loop, so it's uh, it's your newest release. Um, so, but before we get into the bones of it or into the meat, I guess, um, why Bizarro Fiction? Uh, I know, I know uh, you know, uh, Polynix got to be uh, a, a pretty big influence, um, and, and I'm sure Wong is as well. But uh, what kind of grabbed you about Bizarro Fiction that made you want to write in it? Um, it was uh, I actually just had Bizarro like basically assigned to me by one of my best friends. It was you know I was there at the advent of it, and uh, I was getting ready to move up to Portland, and I knew Carlton Mellick the Third lived up here, and uh, I wanted to meet. You know everybody talks about the writers community in Portland and how how rich it is and how many how many people there are and how encouraging it is and stuff. And so I wanted to try and find an inroads to that right away. Cause I'd really enjoyed that when I was living in Eugene. Um, and so, yeah, it was just a matter of, I corresponded with Paul and Nick. I corresponded on message boards. Cause this is, you know, early two thousands with, uh, with Carlton. And he was like, yeah, when you, once you move up here, let's grab drinks. And so we'd just become fast friends, um, right when I got up here and then, uh, I was going to horror conventions with them. We were going to World Horror and World Fantasy and, and you know, a, a lot of the smaller ones and selling books and and uh, doing all that. And then they were like, you know what? Do you have a a, a book in you you want to send us? We're doing a, a first book competition. I was like, yeah, actually, I got I got enough short stories. I could put something together. And that was my first collection, Angel Dust Apocalypse. And it actually, like, won their competition. And they published it around, like, 2005. Um, and then a couple years later... Uh, Eraserhead Press, Afterbirth, Raw Dog Screaming, you know, uh, John and Jen Lawson's publishing group kind of all said, what if we, you know, worked under one banner to sell these weird books that we're only able to market on Amazon and through small, you know, bookstores. We we're coming at it from this weird angle. How do we get more of, uh, how do we reach more people and how do we brand this so that people know this is where you get the weirdest stuff, you know, because there was already, you know, a lot of different speculative fiction titles people are talking about the weird and new weird and um you know there's already a big cosmic horror scene in portland so we're like what differentiates us was like that kind of cult film sensibility and uh the pulp sensibility and the pop culture influences um the vulgarity like just you know it's very much a, I, to me it was like the print version of trauma it was like we're we're gonna we're gonna throw everything at the page we're gonna run cheap and fast. Uh, we're gonna try our best. We're gonna be passionate about it. And every once in a while, we're gonna accidentally crank out something great. Like it was like a, a mass. <laughs> it was very much a pulp ethos, right? Um, and so yeah, I was already just working with them and, and was friends with them. And they were like, hey, we're talking about all calling ourselves Bizarro. Can you change your name on MySpace? This is how long I was. <laughs> like Jeremy Robert Johnson, Bizarro author. I was like, yeah, you know, to me, I'm like, sure, you know, we're having fun together. Let's let's keep having fun. Let's try and make it something. And so, um, yeah, it was like a two, three year stretch of going and doing events at every convention. This we do this uh, hour long thing called like, uh, you know, the Bizarro Show, and and uh, 
would MC those and do events and have all that. But we'd basically try to condense all our different people into one big reading thing that would be more of a production than just someone reading in a room. Uh, so we tried to keep the entertainment value high, uh, have it be kind of anarchic. And then eventually they launched their own convention and stuff. So it, it really, uh, it bloomed. And at one point they had three or four editors working underneath them. And I, maybe they maxed out at like 70 to 100 books in one year. Um, but at that point I was already off kind of doing my own thing and I'd shifted more to, um, I was writing more like literary horror. And so I wasn't producing stuff that felt as bizarro. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and so I kind of didn't do stuff under that banner as much simply because it didn't fit. Like Entropy and Bloom's maybe like 25% bizarro content. And then, then I write like, I'll write like an earnest crime story or a story about weird siblings or straightforward sci-fi. So. Uh, you know, being cross genre, they're really friendly to that, but not everything I did was bizarro. So, um, you know, but Skullcrack City was definitively bizarro. I would say that's <laughs> like, it just has that vibe. It's a, it, you don't, you don't ever, I didn't know where it was going. The reader doesn't know where it's going and it, and it just tries to, it tries to do everything in one book. So, uh, that to me met that vibe. The loop, the loop to me feels closer to, I've been saying like, a, a splatterpunk version of a Michael Crichton novel. So it's got that tech thriller element. Uh, it's also got that kind of over the top violence and political satire and, and kind of the anger of the splatterpunk stuff from the eighties. Um, and then it also has a little bit of my literary influence. Like I spend two to three chapters letting you get to know characters before they all start uh, start dying. So, but that's also <laughs> something I really, one, one of my favorite, you know, kind of more extreme horror titles of all time is uh, Off Season by Jack Ketchum. And man, he spends, he spends five chapters in that book just letting you know the interior lives of the characters before anything happens. And, and then when all of a sudden, when something does happen, <laughs> it's explosive all the way through to the end, you know? And I, I admired that in both uh, off season. And then I thought uh, the film Wolf Creek did a wonderful job of that. So that's something I was trying to try to emulate in the loop too. So it's another mess okay. for me. It's another crazy thing, but, but a different, uh, different kind, you know? I gotcha. Yeah, it, it's almost kind of like those movies, like, uh, you know, like Cabin in the Woods, you know, you're, you're kind of invested a little bit in these characters. And then, like all of a sudden, everything just goes downhill, and it's just bloody and gory and all kinds of stuff to the very end. And and I and I felt you know the, the way you did it in the loop, though. Uh, and and I want you to kind of tell the audience a little bit about it before we go into it. But I felt you know, you 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 started it off kind of nice, and you, you threw a little bit of a wrench in it, and then you kind of came back to being a little nice. Yeah, and yeah. It really went off the rails. <laughs> um, so can you uh, can you tell the audience a little bit about what what the loop is about? Um, yeah, yeah. The the loops about a, a young woman named um, Lucy who lives in a small town in Central Oregon, and she's kind of uh, a social outcast. Uh, she is basically she was orphaned by an accident um, when she was a child in Peru, and she's been adopted um, by these two well-meaning white folks in the in the middle of Central Oregon. And uh, you know, she's made friends with one of the only other people of color at her school, this guy Bucket, who uh, is a uh, uh, from Pakistan, and then they kind of also just run with like party kids and and definitely just a group of outcasts. And then there's also this very strong, you know, economic division in this town, um, where where it's divided along class lines, along with everything else that we divide ourselves from each other with, especially in high school and and all the different kind of caste systems we have. Um, and into this town, uh, there's a small biotech company that uh, makes some mistakes. <laughs> And uh, uh, they end up releasing something terrible into the town that throws it into utter turmoil where it's divided not just along um, class lines, but now 
the lines of, you know, those who've been infected by this device and those who have not. Um, and, and it really is told just, you know, aside from, aside from that brief buildup, it's told in all within the space of, of one very dark night and one morning. Um, and so it's a um, pretty action packed kind of science fiction thriller uh, with, with very, very pronounced uh, horror elements. And I've been told lots of violence. I didn't know when I wrote it, I kind of knew. But uh, uh, the response on the back end uh, about the levels of violence, I, I, I honestly, I didn't know, but I, I've been told enough times it's, it's quite violent. So be aware. <laughs> pretty and, like I, and like I was saying, uh, uh, you know, before we got on, uh, on live, I was like, yeah, it's, it's the perfect YA novel for uh, this Christmas season. Uh, <laughs> apparently some people who have gone into it have, have thought that it's a young adult and uh, it's very far from that. Yeah, we got, I, I, for whatever reason, I think it's because as a teenage protagonist or, you know, some of the marketing materials talk about Stranger Things, um, you know, which which is kind of has a YA sensibility to it. Uh, it doesn't it doesn't have the sweetness of, say, a, a Spielbergian, you know, coming of age. It's I've tried to tell people it's much closer to like the way Carrie is YA. Like it involves teenagers, <laughs> but but these are like these are like gummo teenagers. These are these are the you know. They're, they're more realistic and given, you know, the lives they live, uh, you know, they're like teenagers who know that sex and drugs and violence exist. They're, <laughs> um, they're not idealized in any way. Um, but I thought that made them more interesting too as, as protagonists because it ha does have that kind of every person feeling where, okay, I'm thrown into this and I, I don't have magic powers. You know, I, I don't have that YA staple of, I either have been granted a magic item or some kind of special power, you know. And instead, the characters are all damaged before this even begins. <laughs> so mm -hmm. they have to reconcile their own lives and how tough it is just to live in this city of Turner Falls with, with this absolutely horrific uh, outbreak. Uh, so I thought it added just layers. Um, but it's it, yeah, it's a, it's a different beast. It's YA for super weird kids who are already reading uh, you know, Stephen King and watching any horror movies their parents will let them. Uh, <laughs> there's, I mean, I, you know, there's definitely teenagers that, that dig it. Uh, but, but be warned. Yeah. It's not, um, I wouldn't call it family friendly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's, it's, it's for, it's for, uh, I guess all of us kids that were reading in, in high school, for, yeah. there are still those kids that, you know, just aren't on the iPad or an iPhone all day. Uh, yeah. that actually, you know, opening books and going to bookstores. It's probably for those kids. Not, uh, not for absolutely is for those kids. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, uh, what was your influence behind Lucy? I mean, you know, you, you talked about, already bringing somebody that that's already facing difficulties into a situation where things become even more difficult. Um, you know, what, what were maybe some of her inspirations, you know, or what came to you? Like, this is the character I want to write about. Um, it was, it was a mix of influences. A part of it was, um, I actually, her name came to me in a vision in a, in a sensory deprivation tank. Um, you know, I was, I was, I had writer's block. My wife got me a gift certificate and said, go use this uh, deprivation tank. Maybe you'll find your inspiration. You'll you meditate and something will come to you, you know? And I'd seen altered states as a kid and I was like, oh no, it's going to be super tripped out. Instead, I was kind of in there, like listening to my heartbeat for about 45 minutes. And then all of a sudden, whatever was supposed to happen in my brain happened. I floated up. I had an out-of-body experience and I saw all these green stars and they made they formed into a name and it said, it said Lucia, which, you know, when you, when you read the novel, you know, that's her true name. Um, and so I went home and I was like, okay, I had, I had to tell this story and I have to figure out who Lucia is and, and uh, 
what struggles she faces. And I have to be, uh, I have to honor the fact that I'm telling a story uh, about a person, you know, that's a person of color, that's from a different country. I have to, I have to be true to that. I have to do my research. I have to talk to people I know in my life, you know? Um, and so it was a mix. It was an amalgam of people I knew as a kid growing up because we truly in, in Bend is where I'm from. It's what Turner Falls is based on. Um, and it is a wildly economically divided town, um, you know, that has the kids up on the butte and then there's kids out, you know, not so close to town, uh, living in trailer parks and stuff. And that was, uh, the side I saw things from was that that lower economic spectrum. We really did click up where it was, you know, the Lodi's and the poor kids and the people of color all kind of united as this little pod of outcasts and said, okay, we are a new family and we can survive this town and all the rich assholes by being kind to each other and kind of forming our own world together, you know? Um, and so it was very much like a desire to tell that kind of story too. I mean, the outsiders obviously is a, a precedent there. Lord of the Flies is a precedent. There's like these classic things that, that are at play in that book, but uh, also just telling my story and the story of a lot of kids I grew up with, uh, you know, and, and so many of the characters in that are amalgams of people I really grew up with that now when people from Bend read it, they're always, they, they write me messages and they're like, did this guy really do this? Or did someone say, and I'm like, no, 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 it was a, it, somebody did that, but I wouldn't put their actual name in the book so I don't get sued or, <laughs> or you know, if I ever actually get to go back home and read, you know, at, at Dudley's bookshop there in Bend, I don't want to get jumped when I'm outside. Would you laugh, but it's a very real consideration in that town. That's <laughs> so yeah, every all the, all the names have been changed legally enough, but a ton of it's just truly, uh, inspired by my childhood and a lot of it's um scaled down from what men was actually like oh, which gosh. people are like oh this is this is so brutal and i can't believe this and this happens or that these kids talk like this and i'm like oh my god if i told <laughs> my actual coming of age you think it was like you know uh it, it wouldn't be in print but <laughs> say you wouldn't think you had survived it <laughs> right yeah yeah kids kids do but uh um yeah, the eight, the 80s and the 90s were a hairy period. And the parents, like, what do they say? It was like the most neglected generation of all time. Like, it was like that first period where all the parents just went off to work and were like, I guess whatever happens, happens. You know, we'll see. Yeah. Um, um, plus yeah, I don't, I don't know if, uh, I was going to say, I don't know if you've seen uh, the Class Action Park uh, documentary on HBO Max. But that, I, I have read, I read, the, that thing. Um, I read the oral history of it. Uh, before they did the documentary and found it completely fascinating, uh, but no, I haven't. I haven't seen the the proper documentary yet. But oh my god, yeah, that's that's exactly it. It's just it's killer be killed, and maybe this works, and we'll see. And you know, just thinking yeah. about like the the crappy plywood bike jumps we used to try to make that would collapse underneath you with the nails sticking out. And <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. See, it it really makes me miss the '90s because that was the '90s. Kid. Yeah. So, you know, and I grew up just being able to go down the street. My parents knew where, what part of the city I was going to be in. Yeah. <laughs> doing over there, you know, and yeah. if I came back without any scrapes, they didn't care. But if I came back, yeah. with, I'd have to have a story with it, you know, but yeah. <laughs> go off in the woods for eight, 10 hours and come back home, you know, covered in briars and maybe a tick or two or something. They're yeah. like, <laughs> yeah. Did you break anything? No, we're, we're good. We're good. Yeah. <laughs> Still have the knees in my pants. That's when. That's when I would. You know, they'd be like, "What happened?" I'd be like, "Well, wrecked my bike." <laughs> Obviously, yeah. But the, the free range thing. And then you knew the sun was coming down. There was going to be food again soon. You'd get back home. You'd be like, "All right, here's the the, the feeding periods. 
other than that, yeah. you know, it was free range kids, which was which fun. It's wild now, but uh, thinking about it, but um, yeah, yeah, because yeah, so, now now I think about it as like I can never let my daughter do that. Right, right. It's just a different time now. But yeah, as soon as the streetlights came on, you knew you had to be home. Yeah, yeah. yeah. God, this is hungry. Can we go back? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't, I don't know if 2020 is a shed light on the fact that when you think about the 80s and 90s, but yeah, yeah. I, it's much simpler times. <laughs> yeah, all, all the times prior seem seem pretty pretty sweet right now. <laughs> exactly. So uh, last question I got on the loop. So uh, you, you said you didn't realize how violent it was. Have you just become desensitized to violence at this point? Um, yeah, I mean, so... <laughs> I, I mean, I did go into it thinking I'd, I'd like to do something that has kind of the splatterpunk sensibility where, so I guess I wasn't restraining myself. Like a lot, a lot, a surprising amount of violence does happen basically off page. It's like alluded to or told in, in stories. Um, but towards the end, it really does crescendo. Um, and so I wouldn't say it's a desensitization. It was more just, it was the kind of story I wanted to tell. And it felt, it felt true to, you know, the emotions of trying to talk about um because there is an element of satire to it like there's an element of absurdity to it and and so mm -hmm. that over the top aspect is kind of me finding a, a borderline comical way of dealing with the horrors of like capitalism and classism and racism and division and the life we live now and the the violence we're almost forced into um and so it just felt like almost almost uh absurd right it was it was like an attempt at doing violence as like the way the way john woo does like gunfights right so I'm, i wasn't thinking of it in ter i was thinking of it in terms of like what are the what are the broad strokes here what are, what's the biggest kind of move i can make with this that will, will be the most felt so it certainly wasn't um i wasn't reining myself in uh as i as i approached it um in the way i was thinking about violence uh but yeah in retrospect going back through it and i what happened is somebody sent me a, uh, a trigger warning list. A, a science fiction reader was like, oh, hey, I made this trigger warning list for a friend of mine because I wanted to recommend the book, but I also wanted her to go into it knowing what she was up against. And so, um, and then once the list was sent to me and I looked at it and it was just this chunk of text, I was like, oh yeah, oh my goodness, okay. And it was like, it was like this moment of reckoning where I was like, oh, that's, I made that. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, and I, I don't cast shade on that at all. I think it's per perfectly fine if people want to avoid certain triggers. I know uh, uh, violence against animals, which does occur uh, twice in the loop, uh, is something that people have have an issue with, and, and some people want to avoid that or different forms of conflict. And and I know that was that was an issue a lot of people had with um, the loop's cousin, the troop by Nick Cutter. I feel like they're kind of bosom buddies in their approach. But there was a lot of that was saying tough. inappropriate things. Yeah. <laughs> A lot of infections, um, a lot of that kind of Lord of the Flies sensibility, and also some animal horror. So, uh, you know, I guess I could have looked at the troop in advance and said, "Wait, this has so many similar elements. The audience is probably going to feel a similar level of revulsion." So, <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah, the, the troop, phenomenal book. One I will never read again. Right. <laughs> everybody that i was like you you can read it one time but i will i will never pick that book up again it's still on my shelf i loved it to death but I can't, it, does, I can't. it does what it does yeah <laughs> it, i mean it's like forever like in there <laughs> which, which i'm sure is what he intended yeah yeah absolutely yeah he wasn't he wasn't uh, holding back on that one either no you know? <laughs> that felt like a spider punk throwback to me it had, it had that kind of edge to it 
you know, yeah. and with the military stuff, there was a little bit of a political take at the end. And yeah, yeah, I love that book. They're making a movie, supposedly. Atomic Monster has the rights. Uh, they, it was set to film pre-pandemic, but I don't know, you know, post-pandemic, it's tough to get a bunch of kids out into the woods, fill them up with parasites. <laughs> like, I don't know oh how you do gosh. it. I mean, I just like go, I'll go collect cold turkey on food to watch that movie that day, whenever it comes. Oh, yeah. The, I don't, I don't know if I can do it. <laughs> I, I'm, my guess, my guess is they don't put a couple of those sequences on film. Oh, I'm sure. Oh, I'm sure. No, yeah. The X at that point, you probably couldn't really see theaters. <laughs> there's, yeah, there's gonna have to be workarounds. We, I, I had, a, I had a parasite movie back in the day that that went all the way, did a lot of the same kind of explosions and body part emergences and stuff, and they basically had to put an X warning before it when they showed it at film festivals. They, they would put a specialized like red banner warning up, because uh, yeah, you can't. There's something about that kind, that kind of body horror. That just uh, it grosses people out. Yeah. <laughs> what, <laughs> what, uh, what what video was that? Oh, it's a uh, called When Susser Stirs. It's like a short. It's like an eight minute short, um, and it uh, is is like a story of parasitic infection kind of thing. So okay, is that yeah. is that available still? Yeah, yeah, it's on YouTube. Uh, uh, Alter the uh, they're like a horror streaming service online. They they put it up, and it's uh, you have to sign in. You do have to do the uh, adult sign in. <laughs> To get access to it, which can tell you something, and it, yeah. it's another uh, don't eat lunch kind of thing. Ah, uh, I gotcha. <laughs> All right, uh, last question I got for you. Um, I know we kind of touched a little bit on it, but besides only good Indians and Boatman's Daughter, is anything else you've read this year that just you know you felt was amazing that you know just really hit you hard that maybe you'd recommend? Um, another. I, I mean, I got the newest. Uh, I think it's the newest Evanson uh, songs for the unraveling of the world. Um, which he's always, whatever he puts out in any given year is going to be something I recommend just because he's singular. I mean, he I truly, I still don't hundred percent understand how he does what he does. Uh, but, uh, just wow. Every, every time, I mean, I, he's one of those guys that's continuing to grow too. Like all these different little techniques he uses in this, uh, short story book still have, they have the cumulative effect of making you feel really weird and unsettled and, and making things even in the real world feel, feel surreal. Um, so that's that's definitely up there. Um, finished off Kelly Link's Get in Trouble. Absolutely love that. So I guess I've been reading more shorts lately. And then I'm reading one right now uh, called Folk Songs for Trauma Surgeons by Keith Rawson uh, that Meerkat's going to be putting out next year. And I'm about halfway through that and having a great time with it. So that's that's one I would say to look for. It's It's got a, a really nice dark sense of humor on it and uh, mixes in a lot of speculative elements with um, – Kind of really interesting literary sensibility, so so I'm enjoying that right now. And then yeah, uh, Boat, Boatman's daughter. I just I keep hitting people in the head with that one, man. I just I to me to me I'm like, yeah, I I just love that book. I, it, it's exactly in the right pocket for me. Like it's it's my favorite Southern Gothic since like Tom Piccarelli's A Choir of Ill Children, which is another one of my like favorite all time books. Um, so yeah, get Boatman's daughter. I, I think everybody actually already has the only good Indians based on how that thing's made. I think it's in its like eighth printing. So, <laughs> no, that's stupid. not what you have to apply to as much. Um, but uh, yeah, both of those are up there. Okay. Um, well, I appreciate you taking the time out of your day. I, I know you're you're pretty busy, uh, especially homeschooling. Um, but I just wanted to say thanks. It, it's been a pleasure talking to you. The loop was phenomenal. Uh, definitely recommend it to anybody, not to YA audience, but uh, anybody else. Very <laughs> good. Yeah. Kind of splatter punk throwback. Um, and uh, we're definitely looking forward to what you got coming next. And uh, and I'll be on the lookout for uh, you know some of your some of your novels coming back into print hopefully next summer. Okay. Um, yeah. And uh, 
And maybe maybe we can do this again once uh once your next uh once your next book is close to hitting or you know we won't we won't wait three months this you know next time we'll, we'll actually hit <laughs> you know right after it comes out um but just uh, just thank you so much and let's do this again yeah thanks thanks for having me for sure.